Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the H. And in this one, we'll hit on the Texans' best player getting a contract extension. Also dealing one of their offensive weapons. And we'll hear from a former Houston Rockets coach and Houston Cougar legend on his Hall of Fame head coach on a big anniversary for him. Quick aside, if you missed it this weekend, look for our live UH Cougs Auburn Live postgame show in the live section, of course, of our YouTube feed and on your podcast audio feed. But we'll start with the moment that ruined my weekend, Sean. Houston's most beloved athlete is going to miss two months of baseball. Altuve gets nailed in the hand because of the WBC, a baseball tournament that only seems to get headlines in America when there's a catastrophic injury. Ugh, That's so annoying, too. <laughs> you know, like, for how many months, like, have people been like, oh, I can't wait till baseball's here. I can't wait till baseball's here. And then you get the nerds, you know, as soon as baseball season ends, they've got the countdown clock only 130 days until spring training and catch your pitchers and catchers report and it's like it's here and you're complaining about it you know the injury sucks like anything else but i mean if a guy's gonna get hurt he's gonna get hurt it's just it's baseball it happens and if it's any consolation another american another major league player hit him okay so the whole thing oh the wbc you know these guys shouldn't be playing because of injury and blah 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 it's like okay i'd way rather have my dudes getting their reps and going up against the very best in the entire world versus like some slap trying to make you know the team in spring training that's trying to do too much and hits altuve you know in the hand or in the face or something like that because you see plenty of those guys every year in spring it stinks i think what is it officially uh six to eight weeks yeah um my, my biggest thing is you know who's going to replace him so to speak um, before we yeah. get to that though i'm going to counterpoint you on this one i'm going to counterpoint you on the whole well, it's the WBC, and it could have happened. And it could have happened in spring training. And I get all that, but this is my issue with the WBC. It's being played in March with major league players, which means they're going all out to win for their country at a time when most of them haven't ramped up to throw 95 miles per hour or run as hard as they can. There's no ramp up for this, which is the real danger here. Because if you haven't ramped up to throw at 95, 98 at your highest speed, Sean, that's when baseballs get away. That's when things happen. I it. It, yeah. You know? I, I get it. But, you know, a lot of these guys, I mean, they didn't commit last second. and was like, oh, I'm not, I'll play, but I'm not really ready. It's like you knew you were doing this and they adjust their schedules. And this is like the one time in your regimen, your routine, that there's going to be a hiccup and you have to adjust. You know, hey, adjusting as a 20-something or even a 30-something, hell, I'm 40 and you get a few years on me too, it's a little bit different when we have to get thrown out of whack, you know, in, in our routine. And these dudes are athletes. I mean, they can figure it out. I, I get your concern, but I, I just don't pay too much of a, too much attention to it because they're ballers. They're athletes. They literally live every single day of their life regimented in a routine, whether their game's on or it's the off season. That's just what they do. So I they guess I out. agree with you, the point that they're athletes and all of that. But like I said, 
when these guys come into spring training, we watch it every year. They got to ramp up. And I, I, I know you want to think that these guys, okay, they never shut it down in the offseason. They, they, they're, they're going in January and February because they know the World Baseball Classic is coming. But I don't think so. I don't think these guys are going 12 months out of the year. I know some of the Latin players do this, but this is Daniel Bard. He's an American player. I don't think he's working all summer long trying to, you know, get his fastball under control, just waiting for late February, early March when the WBC starts. I mean, fair, and that might be the case, but that's on him. And I would expect better from a professional athlete, you know, to be honest with you. If you're going to put America across your chest and when a camera and microphone's in front of your face, say how proud you are to be representing your country, but you're not ready. I mean, shut up with that stuff. You know, like you better come to play. If this is so important to you, then you're making that adjustment. And yeah, I mean, there are there are a lot of other guys that could do it maybe more optimally than your Daniel Bards out there. Maybe your Justin Verlanders and your, uh, you know, phenoms like that, uh, you know, are a little bit more equipped uh, to do it. But then maybe not. You know, Justin Verlander is one of those anomalous figures in sports that is so regimented so that might be a weird wacky thing to really throw him for a loop which is probably why he's not doing it <laughs> you know albeit he's 39 I don't know if he'd do it if he was 29 yeah and Daniel Bard you know the sad thing is he's a native Houstonian a Houston guy uh got us in the crosshairs and that kind of sucks you mentioned yeah. Altuve and the leadoff spot and I want to ask you who should lead off now for the Astros but before I do just a quick reminder to subscribe and comment on YouTube we just crossed 1,000 subscribers. Massive thanks to all out there who made it happen. And if you're watching, but there are times when you just got to listen because you're on the run, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. But Sean, who's your Astros leadoff hitter in April and May? And how long before you go off on Dusty because he named Mauricio Dubon leadoff hitter? <laughs> Old school National League baseball. I was just going to preface my argument with like, hey, you know, the Astros are not in the NL Central anymore and it's not 1995. Like long gone should be the days of having that uh, slap hitter, but a fast guy uh, lead off for your team. I I've kind of been thinking about it a little bit, not too, too much, but mainly because I, I guess it just kind of it was my gut instinct. I'd like to see Bregman lead off, you know, to be quite honest with you, because so much of what teams are doing now is they're putting a really good power hitter, but a good on base guy in that lead off spot. And Bregman is that he's got a really great eye. He works walks. He hits the ball to all fields, obviously has the pop. Um, I'd like to see him in the leadoff spot. I guess that's not going to happen with Dubon there. And I'm guessing Hensley will get some time at second base as well. And if Hensley's there, I don't know if you're leading him off. But Dubon was my first thought if, in fact, it was 1999 and the Astros were still in the NL Central. But we'll see how it goes. You know, I know uh, Dusty Baker said, you know, a few weeks back that, Hey, Pena's not his number two guy. It's going to be Brantley if, and when he's healthy and you bump Pena down in the lineup, you know, maybe I know we said that a couple of weeks ago, but I think when you get into the thick of things, there's adjustments to be made and things do change and we'll see how it goes with Dubon. He might pleasantly surprise us. Yeah. I just don't see Dusty wanting to veer from his three, four, five, six hitters. I would assume that Jordan Bregman, Tucker, 
and Abreu are going to be those three through six guys. So if that is the case and Michael Brantley is ready to start the season, which we're still waiting to find out what his progress is or where he's at, if he's going to be anywhere close to ready. But I think the obvious guy, if it's not Dubon, which I hope it's not, is Jeremy Pena. He's your igniter in the postseason. And all three rounds, he got your team going. He's got speed. He's got power. I know he's not a good on-base guy yet, but I just think he's the obvious person. If not, you're going to bump him down to the seventh hole and give all these extra at-bats to Dubon or Hensley, somebody that's even less proven than Jeremy Pena is. It just seems like this is the obvious move right here. Yeah, Jeremy's Jeremy Pena is a really good idea. Uh, I was just going to ask you what you what you think of my Bregman idea. Um, I, I would really like Pena too, and for all of the right reasons, everything that you just said. Never mind that he's not a good on base guy right now. I mean, right now he's got a one year sample size under his belt. The guy's a baller. It's not all too often that we have the opportunity to see a guy that literally is a World Series MVP, won the championship, go into a sophomore season with so many things kind of on the line or the pressures that he must kind of feel, you know, after having done that. Um, I think he's kind of flipping that switch and it's like go time, man, that was, that tasted good. That felt good. Now let's go get another one. You know, I want to see that dog in him and I'd like to see him in an opportunity in a situation to where he can go do that and flourish. And maybe the leadoff spot would be a good one for him. And maybe it transpires that way. But I don't think we're going to see that right off the bat. I think Dusty's going to – he has something in mind. I think he wants to see, for whatever reason, see how he does at the seventh spot, see how Brantley does at the two. And if after the first couple of weeks, you know, that's not working. You've got time, unfortunately, for Altuve before he comes back. Six to eight weeks, like you said, maybe you consider moving Pena up into that leadoff spot. Uh, or maybe it is a Bregman. Who knows? Yeah, I just think it makes no sense to have Jeremy Pena batting seventh. If you've got somebody like Hensley or Mauricio Dubon in the leadoff spot, because you're practically guaranteeing those guys one extra at bat over Jeremy Pena, which, you know, if this is, if Dusty Baker is serious about, you know, this is about what you've done and not about today, then what you've done, Jeremy Pena has done it. David Hensley, I love him, but he hasn't done it. He is a good on base guy. If if you were going to go between Hensley and Mauricio Dubon at second base. You pick David Hensley nine out of 10 times if you're talking about at the plate, although I know he values the field a lot. We know Dusty Baker loves defense, but at the plate, <laughs> yeah. David Hensley is an on-base guy. He's been that way his entire career. Mauricio Dubon is not. So David Hensley would be my, of those two guys, you would put him in the leadoff spot or at the top of the order. But, you know, Jeremy Pena, he's got the track record now. You could say, well, it's only one year, but... What has David Hensley ever done? And what in the world has Mauricio Dubon ever done, period, in his life? Hey, man, Mauricio Dubon's the fly ball specialist that they have on the, <laughs> on the team. Aren't we saving give him, him for center props. field when Justin Verlander pitches? I thought that was what, what the deal was. <laughs> yeah, give him his props. Uh, now that JV's not here, you know, he's got to be a little bit more versatile. And so maybe Dusty Baker's like, hey, get your butt in the leadoff spot. Let's see what you can do, big cat. I, I know we're kind of having fun a little bit, but I'm really excited to see David Hensley, um, you know, kind of get this opportunity, you know, start the year up with the big club because – 
I, I know you liked him too. I mean, he came up clutch, you know, in some situations, was just a good guy to have a capable bat off the bench. And it just kind of gave you another sense of calmness, you know, as Altuve was struggling the postseason. Um, and now that he's not here, hey, look, Hensley and Dubon, they're not household names, but they are unproven. And I do want to see what these guys can do with an opportunity. That's what I'm looking forward to. All right, let's get to the Texans because they made a couple of big news items this weekend. First of all, the Texans' best player, Laramie Tunsil, got a three-year, $75 million contract extension. You got any problems with this, Sean? No, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't. You know, he negotiated his own deal. What does that ring out to? About 25 AAV, something like that. Sure. Um I really don't. I know you and I had a conversation about, uh, I don't know, three weeks, maybe a month ago or something like that in regards to, is he going to be traded? You know, would I like to see him here on a long-term deal? And I kind of hemmed and hawed about that. And it was really just because of the money. And I didn't really know if the Texans were in a position from a franchise standpoint, like where they're building to to make somebody like the leader, you know, set a market value, a new value for his position. And the more and more I thought about it, I was like, you know what? You were right. I mean, they're going to get a young quarterback in here. You've got to protect them. I and you got to, you got to have some, some kind of continuity consistency for that quarterback. And if you can assure that you've got two really good bookend tackles and you've got a good young left guard that's ascending. You bring in Shaq Mason, who's going to play right guard, presumably. We don't know who the center is going to be yet. They'll draft one, I think, certainly. But if they bring a veteran in or maybe maybe Questenberry's that guy, I don't know. Like, that's a good, solid foundation of familiarity, you know, within the building, within a system, capable guys, and, you know, perennial pro bowler in terms of Laramie Tunsil. So I, I like it. I talked about this quite a bit last year. I like the relationship, you know, from my perspective that exists between Laramie Tunsil and Kenyon Green. Those two guys got along very, very well. Kenyon couldn't have a media session without mentioning how much Tunsil's helped him. And just being there as a positive guy, helping him on and off the field with his techniques and stuff like that. So at the end of the day, I do like the signing. It's just, you know, it's not my money. $25 million, you know, AAV kind of stings. I didn't know if the Texans were ready for that. But I guess one of the most important positions on the field, if you've already got a dude, you lock him up. The only thing I requested in that contract, which I don't think they did, was could we take about five hundred grand off a year for every five illegal procedure penalties he gets? <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. That was one of my arguments that I had made. You know, it's the uh, illegal procedures, you know, false start, stuff like that. And for my money, I don't know what he grades out at in, in, in PFF. Maybe you could tell me uh, better than I could. But I, I don't think he's an elite run blocker. He's certainly among the very best, if not the best, pass blockers in the game. But you know, he gets this new three-year deal. I, I'd like to see him take his run blocking to a different level. And maybe it looks a little bit different with another a more experienced uh, Kenyon Green with a year under his belt. Maybe it looks a little bit different in this scheme, you know, with these other offensive linemen. Guys make a group better all the time, and they've got some good guys in there. Titus is going to continue to get better. Shaq Mason's a really good player. If they bring in a veteran center, or if Questenberry takes his game to the next level, or if they're able to get a stud center in the second or third round, whatever Casario does, 
when the draft starts. I don't know, but I'd like to see him step up a little bit more and continue to progress because when you're as good as he is as an athlete at his position, even he'd tell you, like, ceiling, what ceiling? I don't have a ceiling. I'm going to be trying to get better at this, that, and the other thing. And when you're rewarded with a contract like this, that should be the, the first and foremost thing that you're telling your organization is that, hey, I appreciate it, but I'm really working to get better on this, that, and the other thing. I want to circle back to something that you said and all that. But before I get to that, the Brandon Cooks saga is over. He is traded to the Cowboys for a fifth and a six-round pick. Sean is excited, but that means that the Texans traded DeAndre Hopkins for David Johnson, Ross Blacklock, a pick that was a piece of them getting Nico Collins, yeah. two 1,000-yard Brandon Cooks seasons, one whiny overpaid Brandon Cook season, and of course, the Cowboys' fifth and sixth round picks. This trade looks better and better, Sean. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I didn't need you to make it sound like absolute crap. I mean, it'll never sound good. Like, Brandon Cook's going to put up 3,000 yards last year. It still would have been crap. You know, who cares? Um, I'm just glad he's out. Jack Easterby's minion's gone. Uh, I think he's probably the last of them. They've been, the, the NRG's kind of been fumigated. You know, they've cleaned house. They've gotten all that nastiness out of there. And they've kind of officially moved on. And I knew this was going to be the case even before the Robert Woods signing. Like, there was just no way in hell they could allow this guy to come back in. And, you know, to say that even too, um, there was there was talks, you know, ahead of the November 1st trade deadline that, hey, the Texans were trying to move them, but they were looking for way too much at the time. They were looking for a second round pick, as it was reported by multiple people. And they, they were talking with the Cowboys, just couldn't get a deal done. And I felt at the time, I was like, you know what, like the Cowboys are in on this thing and I can totally see why. But that's not a team that generally goes away. Like if they like a dude, especially at a receiver and, you know, he's 29, about to be 30 years old this year and Brandon Cooks, they're probably going to come back. But you're not going to get a second round for him if you're the Texans. And so the Cowboys actually doing this deal did not surprise me. I'm just glad that they did. And, you know, hey, the Texans get a couple of late round picks. Cool. Nick Casario, I feel pretty good about him if he wants to, to parlay that and move up in the draft, you know, and maybe acquire another fourth round pick or even a fifth round pick with some of those later round picks that they do currently have, which is up to 12 now total draft choices in the uh, upcoming draft. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to rename Nick Casario, Nick six round pick. He is the master. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, li I like it. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue that great. But yeah, I, I want to see just how masterful he is uh, come April 27th. I'm feeling really good about it. You know, the more and more I digest what they've done in free agency. I mean, this hall of picks that they do have, um, it gets me excited because if there is a dude or dudes up there at the top or, you know, middling portion of the round of the draft, rather in the third round or early fourth round, they've got the ability to go up and nab a guy, make a deal with a team because they've got that capital. I'm just so glad too, Robert, that you didn't hold on to Brandon Cooks, which I thought they might going into the draft and use him as kind of a trade piece to move up, but they clearly wanted to get him out, move on, acquire the capital that they were going to get that's necessary for them to plan for the draft now that free agency is kind of winding down. The Cooks trade also means that they've cleared out some money. And what does that mean 
for the Texans. What are they going to do with that, Sean? Because you talked about center. It was pointed out to me that Connor McGovern with the Jets is a pretty darn good veteran center that's out there, is still a free agent. I don't know what's going on with him in the Jets, but man, it would be nice to reel him in with that money that you just cleared up. That's a position that you could use. We're still waiting for potentially them adding a linebacker. Are you hearing anything about any of those positions or other positions that they might be looking at? Because that's where I would go. I haven't heard anything uh, specifically about positions, but you bring up a really good point about McGovern and the New York Jets. I think he might be waiting a little bit to see what the finality is with Aaron Rodgers, because that's going to be, you know, a a battery of sorts. You know, I mean, Roger, that's his center and that that's going to be his quarterback. So are those two guys going to be a fit? Do they like each other? Do they know each other? Do they want to play together? You know, um, how do you how think, that, do you think the Rogers thing prohibits some of what they're spending right now? Uh, who the jets? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know what their what their books look like. Teams, obviously, they can make it work. They can get cute. But sometimes I feel like we're way too comfortable in saying those sorts of things because you have to have the guys in-house already that are willing to do the deal to front load some money or to uh, renegotiate their deals. So, I mean, it could be a situation like that, but... I, I just think there's so much conversation going on within New York and there's not finality yet. And once they do kind of figure out the Roger situation, I think we'll start to see those other pieces kind of fall in place. But I kind of hope it blows up because I would really, really like the Texans to get a veteran center. I think that's super important. I feel like they just missed out on Brendel. I don't know if the money wasn't right um, or if he just really wanted to stay in San Francisco. I, I don't know. I just feel like the Texans missed the boat on that one. I thought he would have been such an invaluable piece to come to Houston with this system. They didn't make that happen. I think you need a veteran center, and you need to do better than Scott Questenberry. Not a knock against him, but I just don't think he's a starting center in this league. I think he's a plug-and-play backup if you need him, but they need to do better at that position. Then you'll really have a solidified, strong offensive line a position group Robert that you can feel really really good about going into training camp you're preaching to me the choir pretty heavily because I'm all on board with what you just said no question about it uh this past Sunday Sean would have been Coog legend Guy V Lewis's 101st birthday man it's hard to believe he's already been gone eight years born March 19th 1922. And you know, I was at Guy V's memorial service eight years ago, and I spoke with UH legend and former Rockets head coach Don Cheney about his old head coach. Let's jump in the time machine, Sean, for a little bit. We're going to come back. You and I can talk about it. But let's listen back to this Houston Sports Talk classic clip when I caught up with Don Cheney. What do you think of when you think of Guy V. Lewis? Every time I, I just flag back, I think about that great smile. He was such a charmer. But when he stepped on the basketball court, it was like Jekyll and Hyde. He totally changed. He's a great coach, highly intense. He took boys and made men out of them. I owe him so much simply because I was fortunate enough to, to last in the NBA 38 years, and I have, I have to honestly say a lot of it had to do because of him. Go back to 1968 and that game of the century what do you remember about what coach said going into that game and what his advice was you're playing ucla and it's lou alcinder and they didn't lose games back in that at that time well going into a game like game like that you know everybody's very tense and tight 
uh, because everyone knew about UCLA and their record and, and how great they were. And here's a little team, Houston, who's finally reached a point where, you know, they, they got a nice team that, that could compete with a team like that. But Guy Lewis kept his team together. He kept our confidence high. He prepared us 100%. And we weren't that tense. And, and I have to credit him for that because a lot of time with a game that big, you're nervous, you're a little bit scared. Uh, we went into that game very confident, and I think a lot of it has to do because of him. What did you learn from him as a coach? Uh, you went on to, you know, coaching the NBA, and you were taken from a lot of different guys, I would assume, but I assume you got a lot from Coach Lewis. I, I learned a lot from him, and I told him this once before, especially on the defensive end. I came into the University of Houston as an offense player. I left there as a defensive player, and I owe that to him. And I think by being a defensive player and uh, going into the NBA, I think that's one of the reasons why I lasted as long as I did because he gave me a very sound foundation defensively. And he instilled in me uh, a lot of confidence, you know, in, in terms of uh, what it takes to win, what it takes to compete, and all about teamwork and, and, and team sacrifice. He was one of those coaches who, you know, he wanted to win, and he prepared his player to a, players to a point where they were ready to win. We were in shape. We mentally prepared. And we were going into games knowing that we were prepared. And that, that, that's what it's all about from the coaching level, is to make sure that your players are prepared. He had a little bit of fire to him. I don't think of you as a guy like that as a, as a coach. Did you have to do things a little bit differently? Do you think about things differently than, than, than Coach Lewis? Were some of those stories in, in kind of maybe exaggerated, or was that no, how he no, was? No, that's how he was. I, uh, I remember telling my, my uh, brother, you know, how tough it was. And, you know, Coach Lewis was a charmer, as I mentioned earlier. He had a great smile, uh, always dressed unbelievably uh, uh, perfect, and uh, he carried himself very well. And he very impressed my mom and my coach very well with his charm. But once he put that whistle on and, 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 and put his sneakers on on the basketball court, uh, you talk about a guy who really was intense. I mean, he, like, as I mentioned, he, he took the game very serious. He coached very serious. He was a very tough coach, and he changed. I mean, he was like, it was almost Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, he from a nice guy to an aggressive, hard-working coach, and uh, we benefited from that. You guys both coached Akeem Olajuwon. Did, did you get any advice from him? Did you call him and say, what do I do with this guy? Do you have, do you have anything you can tell me? No, I'm just, I was just happy to have a guy like Akeem who was so talented. Uh, and, and, you know, you can tell that he was molded earlier by Guy Lewis. Uh, and, I, I mean, Coach Lewis, I mean, he, he really, if you want to talk about a player coming in raw, Akeem came in fairly raw. He has natural given talent. But Coach really molded him into a very good player. And uh, when I got him, he was just ready to go. You talk about what he did to integrate the, the conference and, and, and the Houston Cougars. Talk a little bit to me about that and, and what he meant to you mm -hmm. as far as that goes. The impact itself, I didn't realize until later. Uh, as a young high school player, I just wanted to play basketball. Uh, I didn't realize the pressure that was on him in terms of integrating the program, you know, bringing in two black kids in an area where it was totally unheard of at the time. I know he got a lot of pressure from a lot of people and other coaches. So he sort of put his career on the line to a degree, but he knew it had to happen. He made that sacrifice, and I think we all benefited from it. Sean, it wasn't just five Final Fours at U of H. It wasn't just integrating Houston Cougar sports, but he also is very responsible 
for those two championship banners hanging up at Toyota Center, thanks to Akeem Olajuwon, because there's no Akeem Olajuwon in Houston with the Rockets without Guy V. Lewis. I truly believe that. Yeah, great point. And, um, I mean, that's that's absolute fact. I couldn't have said it better myself. That was a fantastic interview, by the way. Um, listening to Don Chaney kind of talk about and explain and describe the kind of coach Guy V. Lewis was. If I didn't know that was an interview about Guy V. Lewis, I might have thought he was talking about Kelvin Sampson. You know, the Houston Cougars are the subject because Sampson, you know, shares a lot of those same traits and characteristics. And when you talk about a coach who's very serious and very intense and the program is hard, he coaches hard. He's nice and sweet to mama. But when it's go time and he's got to put that whistle on and his sneakers on and hit the court and it's practice time, he's a different animal. That's Kelvin Sampson. And I, I wonder if that's kind of the, the the mantra, so to speak, that the style that Sampson has learned about from observing other coaches in history along throughout the course of his career. He certainly knows of uh, Guy V. Lewis. If that's something that he's kind of tried to take with him, and maybe that's kind of fueled something already innate in Samson. It's certainly not manufactured. That's just who Samson is. But that was kind of a fascinating thing, just hearing him describe Guy V. Lewis, which, uh, you know, 101 years old today, happy heavenly birthday to him. But I, I really wish he was around to see his his Cougars um, do what they're doing this year because the way that they play, I think he would be very, very proud of the job that Samson and that staff has done with this team. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the timeline now that you say it because he passed away in 2015. It was around the time Samson came in. And what what point, you know, was was he alive when Samson was getting things started? But uh, as much as Samson probably has some charm with the kids, I can't imagine there's anybody with the charm that maybe Guy V had to get that Texas, you know, ARPA small town, Texas thing going for him. And I'm sure there was a little bit more wink and a smile to his game than there is to Kelvin as much as Kelvin. He, I'm sure he's got it in there, but to me, I, I just look at Kelvin usually and it's, it's business. <laughs> yeah. Kelvin's Kelvin's got it in there. He does. Um, you know, I haven't seen it on the regular, but I can tell you this, he's got a soft spot and, that soft spot, soft spot, you know, comes through very easily when it has to do with one of his guys or their families or people just close to him, the program uh, that he knows. You know, I asked him a couple of weeks back um, on senior night, you know, he got emotional a couple of times and it was Marcus Sasser was the last name that you know they'd called and Sasser comes up there. They didn't even finish reading his spiel and uh, Samson just loses it you know, and is hugging mama and hug Sasser. And I said, dude, you got emotional, you know, tell me why, what, what was it? And he talked about Sasser a little bit, Robert specifically, but it was really just the journey. He was like, you know, you see these guys come in and they're finished products to you, but you don't know anything about their journey. You don't know anything about what it took for them to do what they're doing right here, right now to be in this place and performing in front of all of you, you know, and I know about that and to understand that, you know, he feels it, he can relate to it and he wants to help them and he wants to provide for them. And that's the emotion and that's the passion, that's the care. And that's the relationship that he talks so much, so deeply about and how important it is to build with those guys. 
Hopefully Guy V's ghost is with the Cougars this Friday. I believe it's Friday at 6.15 is tip-off time against Miami. I haven't seen uh, the actual tip-off time. I do know it's Friday, and I would anticipate a primetime game. So um, would you say 7.15 Central time? Uh, 6.15 Central, 7.15 Eastern time. And usually those games are at, at night, so I, I, I'm pretty sure that is correct. And you and I will do the post game for that, I assume, and I can't wait for that one. Yep, uh, 6.15 Central time, and uh, absolutely, I am all down for another post game, and hopefully it is a happy one, my man. All right, we're going to go into our prayer mode as we close things out for Marcus <laughs> Sasser and his groin once again, and uh, we'll talk to you guys a little bit later. Don't forget, within about 24 to 48 hours, the hope and the plan is that I will be talking with a very well-known former Texan player tomorrow. It is going to be up on the feed within the next uh, few hours. So keep your eyes out for that. Looking forward to it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.